This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 7, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Science News Editor Tim Appenzeller talks about the role of artificial intelligence in the scientific endeavor, from pipetting to particle physics. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from the Daily News site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our Daily News site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the twisty human family tree. Which came first? Modern humans or Neanderthals? This is a lot trickier of a question to answer these days than it was about 50 years ago when all we had to go by was bones. With ancient DNA on the scene, we're starting to learn about all the drama amongst our forebears. What's the latest twist, Dave? Well, I um, you know, we, we've known that uh, humans were mating with Neanderthals uh, and potentially many occasions. Uh, But this is the oldest evidence for such a hookup. This is something that could have happened potentially more than 220,000 years ago. And they found a bone in a cave in 1937. And just now we're starting to, we found out something about an interbreeding event. So this is a bone that came from a cave in Germany, belonged to a Neanderthal that lived about 100 thousand years ago. And what the researchers did here was they looked at uh, the mitochondrial DNA. Now, this is the uh, not the main DNA in our bodies, which is the nuclear DNA, but mitochondrial DNA is the DNA in the cell's powerhouses um, inherited exclusively from the mother's side. And the twist here is that when they looked at this mitochondrial DNA, they didn't say, oh, this is Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA. They said this looks a lot more like human mitochondrial DNA. Where do they think it came from? Well, you know, it's really interesting because they think it may have come from a human female that mated with a male Neanderthal uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And what would have happened is the human female's mitochondrial DNA would have over time overtaken any mitochondrial DNA in that lineage. So then you end up with these weird hybrid individuals where 
you know, for all intents and purposes, they're Neanderthals because they have Neanderthal nuclear DNA, but their mitochondrial DNA is human. So this, this, what this really does is push back how early we think humans and Neanderthals interbred, right? Right. And it does explain some of these discrepancies where we're saying, well, what is this individual? Where did this DNA come from? You know, it turns out, you know, every, whenever, whenever we think about, you know, evolution, especially human evolution, things are a lot messier than we thought they were. And this is just more evidence that we can't just draw these straight lines. Okay, this is the human line. This is the Neanderthal line. And never the twain shall meet. Um, this clearly shows that there was a lot of mixing going on and potentially going on very early in both of our histories. Okay. And I just want to bring up, this is not the only example of like a mitochondria from one species being kind of introduced into another and taking over, right? Yeah, yeah. In grizzly bears, their mitochondrial DNA has been completely replaced by that of polar bears. So we're not unique in this situation. Now we have a story on controlling weight through odor. Food doesn't taste so good with a stuffed up nose, but could losing that sense of smell make you eat less and then consequently lose weight? That was the question that researchers went into this study with, but then they came up with kind of a surprising answer. Right. Well, you know, they did find that it helped animals lose weight, but not for the reasons they were expecting. They actually went and knocked out the sense of smell in mice, and then they gave them different diets. What did they see when the mice were not odorless, but odor perceptionless? <laughs> well, so there was a couple different diets. One was just sort of a standard mouse chow, but one was a really sort of fatty diet, the equivalent of us eating a bunch of cheesecake and pizza. And what they found was when they compared the mice that could smell to the mice that couldn't smell with the regular diet, there wasn't huge differences. But in the really fatty diet, the mice that could smell got really obese, whereas the mice that couldn't smell actually weighed 16% less than the other mice. So there's a change in the mice that had a, a fattier diet in how much weight they gained. So what do they think is going on there? Well, the researchers think that it's not because the mice can't smell the food and therefore won't eat it. I mean, that's what we would think. Like, if you can't smell that apple pie and how delicious it is, you're not going to eat it. You're going to lose weight. That doesn't seem to be what's going on here. Instead, the lack of smell appears to be fundamentally changing the metabolism of these mice. So they actually start burning a lot more fat, maybe because their body thinks that they've eaten a lot more than they really have because they can't smell what they're eating. And the body's saying, okay, we got to start burning calories, burning calories, burning calories. Uh, and yet they're actually not eating anything more than other mice are, but they're burning a lot more calories. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the sensation of you know smelling and tasting the food would encourage a mouse to overeat something that was so particularly tasty, but without it, it kind of pays more attention to its feeling of fullness? Well, no, because these mice ate about the same amount. So it wasn't how much they ate. It was sort of what they did with the food once they ate it. All right. And then they did the next best thing, which is they made super smelling mice. <laughs> and what did they see then? And here they saw sort of the opposite effect, that the super smellers became obese a lot more quickly than the mice that didn't have the super smell, suggesting again, um, and again, there didn't seem to be a huge difference in how much they ate, suggesting again that there's some sort of pathway that's linking what we smell to how our body regulates its metabolism, hmm. or at least in mice. Well, let's bring this to people. <laughs> uh, I one of the things they had to do when they knocked out the ability to smell in these mice was give them a little bit of a toxin. I don't see us doing that in people, but is there a way to test this in humans? Well, you know, so the thing going against this working in humans is there have been some studies of people who have lost their sense of smell due to accident, things like that, and they don't seem to have any sort of 
miracle weight loss. Um, but it could be that we just haven't tried to do that the right way. And maybe if you could come up with a spray that would temporarily block our sense of smell, we would lose weight. Although who would want to eat all that delicious food without being able to smell it? Last up, we have a story on lightly oiled birds. One of the most emblematic images of the impact of oil spills on wildlife is seabirds covered in oil, which is known to harm the birds through ingestion. They can breathe it in or because it could compromise their feathers' ability to insulate them from cold. But one open question has been, what is the effect of these oils or being dipped in oil on the ability of the bird to fly? So Dave, why might that be a problem? Well, so, you know, here, I mean, when we're talking about oil, I mean, obviously we've seen these pictures of seabirds in the aftermath of disasters like the BP oil spill or Exxon Valdez. These birds are coated in oil. And clearly, if they're not dead or close to being dead, they certainly can't fly. But the question is, what about if they just got a little bit of oil on their wings, on their tail feathers? How much of a difference would that make in their ability to get around? Right. And this key question of how much oil... Um, how did they test it? Did they actually oil up some birds? They kind of did. They, they took uh, western sandpipers, which are migratory shorebirds that have been shown in the past to be affected by oil spills, specifically the Deepwater Horizon spill um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And what they did was they put a bit of oil uh, on their wings a little bit on their tail feathers, and they had them actually fly in a wind tunnel, and they compared their ability to fly with birds that didn't have any oil on them. And they did not act the same. I mean, these birds were supposed to fly for two hours, but even the lightly oiled birds got really tired. They got really tired. A lot of them tried to land, which is sort of evidence of being tired. And even those birds that completed the test consumed about 22% more energy than the oil-free birds. And that was only when 20% of their feathers or their body surface was covered with oil. What happens when it was even more oil? Right. So when the, the researchers put some more oil on the, on, the, on the birds, on their backs and their bellies, this time the birds spent 45% more energy trying to fly than those birds that didn't have any oil on them. Okay. Birds need to fly to escape predators, you know, hunt for food. But if it takes a lot longer to get somewhere, say if a bird is traveling really far, what are the consequences that it's so slow? Right. A lot of these birds have specific stopovers they have to hit at specific time points, especially when they get to breeding colonies where they have these short windows where they have to get there, mate. And if they are late, they can miss their chance to breed. And sometimes those chances only come and in fact, most of the time, these chances only come once a year. And so they miss that. They've missed their chance to reproduce for that year. And so if taken beyond the individual level and extrapolated to the population, this could have a really big impact on these populations. And especially a lot of these populations are already um, under threat because of things like oil spills and other environmental issues. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about sexual intimidation in primates being a lot more widespread than we thought, and we're not talking about humans here. Also a story about how some of the fastest stars in the Milky Way may be runaways from another galaxy. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the U.S. House of Representatives is pushing back against a lot of President Trump's proposed budget cuts to science agencies. Also an update on the creationist geologist who's trying to get a permit to collect rocks in the Grand Canyon. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
This week, the news team has put together a big package on artificial intelligence and science, not the AI driving our cars exactly or trying to identify us in Facebook pictures, but how machine learning, neural nets, what have you, are contributing to the scientific endeavor. Science's news editor, Tim Appenzeller, put this section together. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. So, Tim, are we at a tipping point here where AI is starting to really contribute to science, or is it just the beginning? Where, where on the curve are we? Oh, I think we're pretty high on the curve, and it's been a steep curve. But the reason we did the section is we started noticing results all over the place that were delivered with the help of AI. Mm -hmm. One of the features actually talks about a roboticized lab. This is a biology lab run by an artificial intelligence. Why do we need to give up the pipettes and the brain work behind this kind of science? What's to be gained? Well, I think the ability to deal with really large scale. This is a lab, it's a biotech that is trying to improve microbes that produce chemicals by fermentation. And to find better microbes, you have to make lots and lots of mutations in different colonies. And then you have to figure out which mutations work well together. You can't just add all the beneficial mutations together in one bug because that bug may end up sick. The mutations may, may actually be at odds with one another. So you have to explore this really complex genetic landscape that you learn about from many, many thousands of experiments. And it's just too much complexity for human experimenters to deal with easily. But an artificial intelligence system can keep track of all these results and design the next round of experiments and keep assimilating all this information, finding the significant patterns, designing new experiments, and getting closer and closer to the desired outcome. But I'm going to point in here that this is not a robot or an AI that could replace a scientist. They have plenty of thinking they need to do to get this going and to keep it working, right? Well, this lab is really on the cutting edge. And um, one of the telling moments in the story is when the journalist asks a scientist what the robots in the lab are up to at a particular moment. And he says, I have no idea. <laughs> I didn't design the experiment. The system designed the experiment. Of course, the whole thing was originally set up by people. Right. But the way the science proceeds is really up to the AI. Hmm, that's really interesting. The section also includes a peek at a few other scientific domains where artificial intelligence has begun to play a role. One is autism and genetics. What's happening there? I should say that you know the usual role of AI is, is in dealing with very large data sets mm -hmm. and finding patterns. It's mostly interpreting data. It's not designing experiments the way it is at the biotech. And in the case of autism, the thing is that thousands and thousands of genes appear to contribute. The question is which ones? They all contribute just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so this work used an AI to look at the few dozen known autism genes, look at the way their proteins interacted, where they were active, look at all their characteristics, and then scan the entire 25,000 human genes for others that looked similar. Mm -hmm. And they came up with thousands of candidate autism genes. You also mentioned this was being, uh, these types of neural nets were being used to look at, what did you say in your email? Was it social network data? So yeah, social scientists, I mean, the, the, the range of fields that have seized on AI as a way to deal with big data is really amazing. And one of them is social science. Uh, the big data come from social media. Twitter, Facebook, yeah. billions, billions of people. Billions of posts, social media posts every year. And those tell you a lot about the public, mm -hmm. about all the people who are on social media, if you have a way of analyzing them. Well, this is where AI comes in. There's a project called, I believe, the World Wellbeing Project. 
which analyzes social media data with AI and, for example, has looked at correlations between self-reports of depression and particular terms in social media posts, negative terms. And it learned how to associate particular words in social media with self-reported depression. And then the scientists went on to deploy that, that algorithm on a much larger data set from mm. social media. So they basically can, can diagnose the mood of wow. whole populations with the help of AI. And we've been focusing a lot on the biological sciences, so let's take it over to the physical sciences here. Um, where else has AI been contributing in that realm? One of the earliest fields to embrace it was particle physics because they deal with just torrents of data from the uh, detectors in these big particle accelerators where new kinds of particles are created in these high-energy collisions and they decay into showers of other particles. The thing is to, first of all, identify those particles and look for significant patterns. And as early as the 1980s, physicists realized that the fairly simple neural nets of the day could help. Now they are really standard equipment for particle physicists mm. sifting through these petabytes of data. And astronomers as well have taken these on? Yeah, and we, we tell the story of a really interesting application, which is a system that has learned what galaxies should look like. It just has, its, has a mental image of galaxies, and so it can look at data from sky surveys uh, where there are zillions of smudges, things that might be galaxies or might not, and it looks at them, it inspects them, and decides which ones really are galaxies and which aren't. And it sharpens the images mm -hmm. so that astronomers can basically get, get much more detail, much more data out of the sets they've collected. Wow. Okay. I wanted to touch also on the second feature. This is another big story in this section. And it's on the neuroscience of AI, looking into the so-called black box of machine learning. Can you set up this black box problem for us and why is it particularly troublesome when we're talking about the use of AI in science? AI is proving very, very useful. The unsettling thing about it is that scientists don't generally don't know what it's really thinking, why it came up with the answers it did. The computations within the neural network are hidden. The neural network has learned on its own. It wasn't programmed to recognize a dog that it just learned from having seen many, many images of dogs, how to tell a dog from a cat or a human, let's say. So the question is, what is it, what is it really cueing on? Is it cueing on the things that, that we think make a dog doggy? <laughs> or is it cueing on the collar or the fact that dogs like to jump? Is it cueing on something that would really send it in the wrong direction? And where does that come up when you're doing something like more scientific? Scientists want to know, they want to know not just what the result is. They want to know how the result was obtained. And so they really want to know something about the thought process, thought in quotes, that the machine has taken in reaching the conclusions that it does. And the feature looks at these different techniques for looking deeper into the brains of neural nets, right? Yeah, it does. Um, it spawned a whole, a whole discipline, really. One way to do it is to, is to give it unusual inputs. In other words, test it with things that are outside its usual training set and see how it responds. Basically trying to figure out what it is, what it's really cueing on mm -hmm. when it gives you a particular answer. One of the interesting things I heard from Paul who wrote this story is that he said, you know, they've known how to do this since the 80s, but it's really this change in the availability of data and processing power. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think that's yeah, really... In a way, it came along at the right time because you know computers have, have made it possible to accumulate huge data sets, right. but they're so big that they people can't deal with them mm-hmm. on their own. Luckily, these, these neural nets are also coming into their own and they turn out to be just a godsend. Um, to to scientists dealing with these huge data sets. So one effect of working with computers is that we have way more data, but we can also we have help. a tool. Yeah, we have a tool. It's a slightly. Uh, it's not that it's an un- unreliable tool, but we don't quite understand it. We've created something that learns on its own, and the connections it makes are ones we didn't uh, set in advance. Tim, thanks so much for talking with me. That was a pleasure. Tim Appenzeller is Science's News Editor. You can find the special issue on AI at www.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.